Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We gave our stagehands today off, so... Let's see, I got a cell phone up here. Let's take a picture or two. Y'all smile. That's your phone, Josh? You had wanted some pictures, didn't you? So I'm preaching through Colossians on Sunday morning, and we come to probably the most direct message from Paul to refute the false teaching, the heresy that was true in Colossae. And just to catch up to date, if you had not been here yet, I've said this before, Paul is in probably Rome in a prison. Colossae is being led by Epaphras a thousand miles away. Epaphras has come to Rome, and Paul's going to send a letter back with Epaphras. And it even tells him to share it with the church at Laodicea, which was a little over 10 miles away. And Paul is refuting heresy. It hadn't become full-blown in the church yet, but he was concerned that it was headed that way and it would ultimately make its way to Laodicea. Two things about heresy, and you're going to see this brought out in the message, but I want to, I want to get you on this page. First, either Jesus wasn't enough. So part of the heresy was, okay, it's fine that you've come to faith in Christ, but you've got to do these other things too. Those were the Judaizers that were saying, you've got to become a Jew now that you become a Christian. So either Jesus wasn't enough or the other heresy was the beginning of Gnosticism that said Jesus wasn't fully God, that he was a God, that he was kind of an emanation from God. But the closer you got to earth, the further you got away from God, the more evil you became until ultimately you were evil on earth representing God. It makes no sense. So either Jesus wasn't fully God or he wasn't enough. And the truth is Jesus is enough. You add nothing to the cross and Jesus is fully God. So I titled the message, Believe the Truth. There are things that you probably have believed all your life, and maybe you've already begun to realize, you know what, some of the things I thought with all my heart, I believed with all my heart, aren't really true. So I thought about what, what would some of those things be. One, for hundreds of years, some people, not everybody, but some people believe the earth was flat. Now this is before your time. We've discovered it's not flat, uh, you know, several hundred years ago. So I Googled what are some things that people believe. And some of these I thought were true. Now, the first one's not. I'm from Georgia where they grow peanuts, and I know peanuts are not a nut. Did you all know that? Peanuts are a legume. They're closer to clover or soybeans or um, chickpeas. you all like chickpeas? you all like hummus? That's chickpeas. Uh, here's one that, that I'm glad I'm going to share this with you. This is a fallacy that people believe. Twinkies do have an expiration date. <laughs> I didn't realize this was a common belief, but apparently people have been hoarding Twinkies for the zombie apocalypse, and they think they're going to last forever. But they have a shelf life of 25 days. Here's, a, here's the thing I believed, and that is that bats are blind. Apparently bats are not blind. According to Rob Mees, the former executive director for the Organization for Bat Conservation, I didn't know they had that organization, <laughs> but he told National Geographic, bats can see three times better than humans. 
Can you see a bat sitting in a chair and the, <laughs> the optometrist saying, number one better or number two? <laughs> so they figured out there are three times better sights. Bulls get angry when they see the color red. I thought that, but apparently bulls can't really determine red. It's just bright color and the fact you're moving a cape. So be careful around bulls. Here's a common one. It's safe to eat floor that's been on the it's safe to eat food that's only been on the floor for five seconds or less. There was a study done by all places, Clemson University in twenty seventeen. They left bologna and bread on a surface contaminated with salmonella and found that a substantial amount of bacteria transferred to the food within five seconds. So you're on your own. You're taking a risk. Last one, common belief is that Cinco de Maya is Mexico's Independence Day. How many believe that? We celebrate Cinco de Maya, right? It's not their Independence Day. It is, it is the day they remember a great victory in battle over France, I think, in the France-Mexican War. But it's, it's way more celebrated in this country than it is even in Mexico. Now, those are intended to be kind of silly and stupid. Here's the problem. There's some of you that have walked in with the wrong view of God or the wrong view of yourself. I talk to people. Some people feel like I'm too bad for God to do anything with my life. And it goes kind of like this. Would you like to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior? And their answer is, well, you don't know what I've done. I don't know what you've done. It's not really important that I know what you've done, but God knows exactly what you've done, and he loves you in spite of it. In fact, he died on the cross even while you were a sinner. So some would say, and, and a common fallacy, a common misbelief, is I'm too bad for God to do anything. And there's other feel like I'm too good. I've had a guy tell me not long ago, I asked him about his relationship with the Lord. He said, well, you know what? I've never really done anything that bad. What he was saying is I don't really need God. In fact, if I was to go to God, he'd be lucky to have me because I'm a pretty good guy. Really? So Paul is going to speak to those beliefs that are common fallacies and misconceptions. And he starts out by saying, see to it. Let me read the passage. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Paul speaking. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him... You've been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So the first thing that Paul says is look out for deception. I've already shared some things you've been deceived by this morning, so look out for it. It's a warning. It's Paul saying this is a moment when the flag and the bells and the whistles, the flashing lights ought to go out to say, see to it, take responsibility. You've been forewarned that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Takes you captive. What Paul is thinking about is 
that an invading army has come in and kidnapped you or taken you hostage or taken you captive to go back to their country to serve them. It certainly happened throughout the history of Israel. And Paul's saying, see to it, not only that you're not taken captive by an invading army, but see to it that no one takes you captive in a couple of ways, philosophy and empty deceit. In fact, in Acts, look at Acts 20, 29 through 31. Same author, Paul is saying, he didn't write Acts, but he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So Paul's already warned them, this day is coming, so see to it. Take responsibility. Be careful that you're not taken captive, that you're not led away, first of all, through philosophy. Now, philosophy means love of wisdom, so fond of wise things. So that's not a bad thing, right? Where it becomes bad is when it's the philosophy of the world. And he goes on to use the word empty deception. Be careful. The fact you love wisdom is a good thing, but be careful your love of wisdom doesn't lead you to the wrong kind of earthly, worldly wisdom that is truly empty deception. Take care. See to it. And here's the three options. The way the world will try to lead you away from God and try to lead you and take you captive is, first of all, through the tradition of men. The Jews had become masters of this. The Jews had added so much to the law. There's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. There's the Ten Commandments, but there's a lot of dietary laws and other kind of laws that were of God that, that pointed out our need for a Savior. But the Jews had added things to those laws so that they didn't know what was from God and what was from them, just tradition. And that's what was happening in the church of the first century. The Jews were saying, okay, it's fine that you've come to faith in Christ because some of the Jews had come to faith in Christ. But they were bringing with them all that tradition that they had had from their background. And you've got to ask yourself the question sometimes, is the tradition I'm following, is it from God or is it only from man? Be careful that you don't fall captive to the traditions of men. In fact, Mark 7, Jesus saying to them in Mark 7, 9, you're experts. He's speaking to the Pharisees. You're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Think about that. That's Jesus speaking to their face. You become experts at not obeying God, but you've elevated your tradition as more important than even the things of God. So the first thing they would do is lead you in traditions of men. Secondly, elementary principles. It means something orderly in arrangement. It literally was the ABCs of religion. So Paul is saying, be careful that you're not kidnapped, taken away, held captive by elementary principles of what? Of the world, rather than Christ. So the third one is you can either, number one, follow the traditions of man, the elementary principles. Third one just kind of lumps it all together, rather than, than Christ. So anything other than Christ, if you're following that, it's going to take you captive and it's going to kidnap you and hold you against your will, so to speak. And Paul's saying, look out for that. See to it that that doesn't happen. You have a choice. You can follow the things of the world or you can follow Christ who died on the cross to forgive you of your sin. Returning to human, listen, when you come to faith in Christ, returning to human tradition would be like graduating from college with a master's degree and going back to seminary. Seminary? Kindergarten. <laughs> Let me say that again. It would be like getting your master's degree 
and going back to kindergarten. Now, unless you got your master's degree in like pre-K elementary education, you're not going to get your master's degree and go back to kindergarten. You're returning to the elementary things of the world. And Paul's saying, look out for that kind of deception. So the second thing, in him you have truth. Three times in this short part of the passage it says in him. So I want to teach you one Greek word this morning. It's the word pronounced, or it's the word for in. In means fixed position. It's a relation of rest. So when Paul uses the word in, he's saying all the fullness is in Christ. It has found a, a relation of rest. All the fullness dwells there. So here's the Greek word for the word in. It's the word in. Now, it's spelled differently, but it's pronounced the exact same. So when you hear the word in in Scripture, if it's in the Greek New Testament, it's the word in. It looks more like E-V, but it's E-N, in. So what does it mean? A relation of rest denoting fixed position. So catch this. Follow along. You remember what I told you earlier about some of the false teaching. In Christ, three things. In Christ, first, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That goes against the Gnostic thought that it was just part of the deity. No, all. We've got to look at words when it says all. Is there anything left out of the word all? The answer would be no. This is live, by the way. I'm not a video. You can answer. It's okay to talk back. So there's nothing left out of the word all. So all fullness. So is there any part of God's fullness that is not in Christ? Thank you. Who said that? Good answer. He can play a shoebox and he can answer questions. So literally dwells, it is housed permanently, it's taken up permanent resonance. Jesus, you've got to get this, Jesus is fully God. And most of you would say, well, I believe that. But there's some people that don't act like they believe that. Jesus is fully God. Even though the Gnostics would teach he was just partially God. So in him, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. What does that mean? That means that all the fullness of God had always dwelled in Jesus but when Jesus stepped out of heaven willingly, took on the form of a human, a servant, all the fullness of God dwelled in that bodily form. Jesus, fully God, fully man. Get your mind wrapped around that and it'll give you a headache, but it's the truth. Jesus, fully God, fully man. In him also, you've been made complete. In fact, the word complete means full. You've been made full. You've become, as, as Peter says in Second Peter, a partaker of the divine nature. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, you remember how he created them? He created them in his image, which means character or nature. What happened to that image in, in the fall? Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve sin against God. That image gets messed up. And yet that's been God's plan from the very beginning to restore you to him, to restore you to his character, to his nature, to the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and you've been made complete. Listen to what he says about Jesus. He is the head over all rule and authority. Again, speaking against the traditions of men, speaking against the false teaching that was coming against the Colossian believers. So in him, all fullness dwells. In him, you have been made complete. And in him, you were circumcised. Whoa, wait a minute. What does that mean? Circumcised. In the Old Testament... They were told to circumcise all the males. It meant a cutting away of the flesh. It was symbolic of what was going to happen in Christ. It was symbolic of taking the, the, the filth of the flesh away. In fact, it's amazing, even after 40 years in the wilderness, they circumcised the males again. 
And when you read that, you've got to understand these were the ones who had been born since they came out of Egypt. So it wasn't like they got circumcised a second time. It's just all the ones that had been circumcised coming out of, of, of Egypt had died. And so it was pointing to an ultimate fulfillment of circumcision that was made without hands. It's not a cutting away with a knife. It is what Jesus did at the cross. So you were circumcised with a circumcision not made without hands. So what's Paul speaking to? Paul is speaking again to that Jewish Christian who is telling his new Gentile Christian friends, well, it's well and good that you've come to faith in Christ, but you need to get circumcised. I'll let you mind wander with that for a few minutes. If you're a 30-year-old guy that just came to faith in Christ, it would be unnecessary to get circumcised, but you're certainly not lining up to have that happen. And yet that's what they were being taught by the Jewish Judaizers. In fact, circumcision in the Old Testament was an, an identification with the covenant family, the covenant relationship with God. And he goes on and talks about baptism. Because you've been circumcised with a circumcision without hands. You have been baptized in baptism, which is in which you're also raised up with him. The beautiful picture of baptism that we see in the first century, but we also see now is that it demonstrates buried and raised from the dead. When I baptize people, one thing I'll ask them is, what is your profession of faith? And I don't tell them what to say, but they typically say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my Savior. And then I'll say something like this. Because of your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Now, a couple of times that's gone wrong. I baptized someone a couple of years ago out here in the ocean, and I knew walking into the water, the undertow was horrible that day. And so I asked her, what is your profession of faith? I baptize you now. And I'm talking as I'm putting her under the water. And about this point, my feet went out from under me, and we both got baptized that day. <laughs> I also baptized folks in the Jordan River when we were over there on our Israel trip. And I had a pastor that said, I want to be baptized in the Jordan River I want you to baptize me, and then I'm going to baptize my wife. Well, it's sub-freezing temperatures in January in the Jordan River, and so what I normally do is talk as I'm putting you under. I can't do that because it takes your breath away. And so I would, I would say everything I wanted to say, put you under, gather myself, and finish the statement. When he came out of the water, he said, you're going to have to baptize her. So baptism is a picture. Just like circumcision was a picture, it was a foreshadowing of covenant community, baptism is the same picture. It's not just a picture. It's being obedient to God to follow him in baptism. We're identifying with Christ, not only in his baptism, but in his death as Jesus was placed in the grave. But we're not left there. We don't hold you under to the bubble stop. We bring you back up because it demonstrates to the world a picture of what you've just confessed with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and you've been raised together with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in him you have the truth. And then last, you've come from death to life. I want you to follow this. There's a lot, there's a lot of good theological stuff here. Paul says in verse 13, when you were dead, focus on the word when. It doesn't say after you got your life together. It doesn't say that after you memorize Scripture or after you become, become a follower of Scripture, but it was when you were dead, literally when you were a corpse. What can a corpse do? Nothing. I don't want to be overly graphic here, but you've got to get the mental picture of this. When you were dead, 
How were you dead? In your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made you alive. Romans 5, 8 says this. It says, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, that's good news. That's good news. One person said amen. That ought to make you want to shout. When you were dead, God reached down and made you alive together with him together with Jesus. So the first thing he does is he makes you alive. The second thing is he forgives you. Literally, he pardons, he rescues, he delivers. I love the word forgiveness in Scripture because it means to send forth or send away. It takes your sin that you and I could do nothing about. We were dead in our sin. We couldn't clean ourselves up. We couldn't take enough baths. But God, according to Ephesians, being rich in his mercy, made us alive, and he has forgiven us all, there's another word, all. Is there anything left out of the word all? We've already discussed this. No. So every sin is put under the blood of Christ. All sin, all transgression has been canceled out. Paul's using a visual image they would be familiar with. I hope that I can explain some of it so it makes sense to you this morning. But it, he has taken this certificate of death, something handwritten. It meant you had a debt that you owed, and they would typically post this on the wall of the city or on a prominent place that you had signed off on the fact, handwritten, I owe this. And I want you to keep in mind that certificate on the wall because something's going to happen to it. He is canceled out. Literally, he is smeared out. He is obliterated. He's blotted out. He's wiped away the certificate of debt. You owed a debt you couldn't pay. It was an IOU, and you had handwritten it. Anybody closed on a house recently? When you go to the attorney to close on a house, you have to sign your name about a hundred times. Well, you had done that one time on the fact you owed a debt you couldn't pay. And yet Jesus, through his death on the cross, has blotted it out, has smeared it. What he's done is stamped paid in full. And what would happen to that document on the, on the prominent place in whatever city that you owed this debt? They would come by and stamp on it paid in full. So the people that knew you owed the debt would also know that debt has been paid. And you didn't pay it. Jesus paid it. He's canceled out, wiped away the, the certificate of debt, and it consisted in degrees against us. It was laws and ordinances. The law of the Old Testament not only pointed out our error, our fault, it, it showed us how desperately needy we were for a Savior, but it also told you what the penalty of that was. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Anything left out of the word all? No, all of us. Romans 6.23, but... The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So not being able to keep the law earned us death, death, not debt, death. We had a debt we couldn't pay, but it was death. Well, we couldn't pay that, but Jesus did. He paid it on the cross. And look what he's done. This is cool. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. The picture that Paul had is of a conquering general coming back into the city with his conquered foes in front of him and standing them in the public square and taking their armor away from them, taking their weapons away from them, and even putting them to public shame. Our enemy has been defeated. Now what Paul's writing to is a group of people who've just come to faith in Christ, who are hearing contrary opinions from outside the church that were trying to make their way into the church. And so this is good news the Apostle Paul to say, number one, Jesus is enough. 
and Jesus is fully God. And in him you have forgiveness, that weight of sin that you've carried around, that, that crushing weight that you feel like I'm never going to be good enough. Apart from Christ, you never will be good enough. But in Christ, you're pronounced holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. We've already looked at that. Having triumphed over them through them, through him. So how do we apply that to our lives? If you've walked in here this morning and you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope that that is good news, just a refresher course to remember, here's what God did through Christ at the cross. You've been forgiven. Your sin is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. So live like that. Don't let the enemy convince you that it's some other way. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, today's the day of salvation to give your life to Christ, to take that sin and transfer it to his account because he transfers his righteousness to your account. We're going to close with a song in just a moment, but let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you.